I just want to remind us that when we use the word gospel, uh, it has to do with what we talked about a couple weeks ago about justification. When we say gospel, we mean the good news whereby Jesus took us from being enemies of God and by his declaration and his goodness, he made us friends with God. He changed our state in relationship with God. We were deserving of sin or, or deserving of the, of the result of our sin, which was alienation from God, death, hell, uh, destruction, all of those things. And Jesus, by his declaration, or God by his declaration, because of the actions of Jesus, declared us right with him. That is the gospel. That is good news. That is to be made right with, with God. We called that justification uh, uh, two weeks ago. But that's the gospel. Sometimes in our culture, and especially in church cultures, um, depending on what church you grew up in, uh, they might make the gospel or the good news into something else. And so um, someone has said, and I don't, I don't even know who, who said it, but, but the gospel is the idea that Jesus did not come to make bad people good, but he came to make dead people alive. The Bible teaches that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and that we had to be made alive. And so um, it would be distressing for me as we talk about more and more about what God has done for us and who he's made us, that we would hear some other form of gospel, some other idea, some other conception that what we truly need is to be good boys and girls, that we need to make uh, that that if we're never good boys and girls, then God will never be pleased with us and God will never care for us. Because I think sometimes in our misunderstanding of the good news, in our misunderstanding of the gospel, we think of, of God like, um, like a, an absentee parent or a parent who's barely involved, whose approval we are constantly searching for and whose approval we are constantly striving for and whose approval we're constantly working for. And if we could just do it enough, if we could just be good enough, then finally God would would appreciate us. Finally God would approve of us. That is not the good news found in the Bible. The good news found in the Bible is that because of the actions of Jesus, because of what Jesus did, you are approved, you are appreciated, you are loved, you are cared for. That's good news. To say that that, that Christianity is about you becoming a good boy or a good girl or a good man, or a good woman, is not the gospel. In fact, it is a horrible perversion of it that you'll never live up to. Because frankly, you ain't all that good. And neither am I. And you can't live up to it. You can't measure up to it. You can't try and work up to it. It doesn't, uh, it, it does not happen, right? We talked about that. So, uh, easing into, into our topic, we talked about the first message in this series was the bad news. Who are you? Bad news is you were born a sinner for all of sin and fall short of God's glorious ideal. All of sin and fall short of God's glory. You are a sinner and that is a reality that is not pleasant. We do not love it. We don't go great, but it's a reality. And when we realize it, uh, it does at least put us on par or equal footing with every other human who has ever lived, save one, and his name was Jesus. It puts us all in the same boat, all in the same category. It, it puts us all in this together so that when um, you encounter other people and they might want to judge you or come against you, you realize they're just like you. you we're all 
just sinners. And then we talked about that. That was the bad news. But the good news is, is that God himself decided that he would justify us. And justification is the means whereby God from being enemies of God and declared us to be friends of God. We talked about that in terms of a courtroom motif wherein you were brought before the judge. The judge in this case was the holy God of Scripture, the holy God of history. He looked at you and he viewed you in light of Jesus instead of declaring you guilty and condemning you to what you deserve, he declared you innocent and gave you what Christ deserved. Then last week we said, because of this, because you have been justified, made right with God, now then, we don't have to live in sin anymore. You have died to sin. In being made alive in Christ, you have been made dead to sin. And this is good news, right? This is great news. We talked about how most people... Even though people in our culture sin rampantly, all commit sins, most of us don't want to be in sin. Most people do not, at the end of the day, truly enjoy the sins that they're committing. If you meet a person who says they truly enjoy their sin, they're probably committing a sin by telling you that they're lying. People don't typically enjoy their sinfulness. And the good news in Jesus is that we don't have to be trapped in it. Anymore, so I don't mean that in the moment that people don't uh, don't enjoy uh, their 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 drunken splurges, or they don't enjoy that. In the moment, they may enjoy it, but the reality is is that the part of our conscience, while while seared by by the brokenness of the fall, our conscience, though though not not uh, not completely accurate, our conscience, because it's been given to us by God, still haunts us. We know innately that there's something wrong. And we, we don't really deserve anymore. And so in Jesus, because he's justified, you have become dead to sin. That's who you are. So who are you? You're a sinner, but you're a sinner who's been justified. You've been justified. You've died to sin. And so then this week, we, we're going to talk about this. You have become a slave to righteousness. So who exactly are you and why does it matter? I feel like for all of us to realize what Scripture teaches we are, is is um, uh, amazing and life-changing, to say, say the least. And I'm going to read to you from uh, Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, whether of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to the heart of the standard of the teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin, have become, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your human, your natural limitations. Just as you were once presenting yourself, your members, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to satisfaction. Slaves of sin, you were free in regard to in righteousness. Uh, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now you have been set free from the sin and become slaves of God. And the fruit that you get leads to sanctification. It's in eternal life. For the wage of the sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, let's, 
we need to, to tackle one issue really quick up front. When we use the word slavery because of our American history, we get very, very uncomfortable, and rightly so. America has a horrific history of Chateau slavery, uh, a, a slavery which, which essentially said that a certain race of people were, were less than human. Um, even, uh, I think it's Abraham Lincoln's birthday, Monday or it was Friday. Abraham, we're going to celebrate Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Abraham Lincoln, known for signing the Emancipation Proclamation, which is, is great. Uh, it was a good point in our history. But even Abraham Lincoln, in signing that, did not view the black man in America as equal to the white man. He just viewed him as, as um, worthy of protection above, for instance, those in the, in the animal kingdom above a pet. And so we have a horrific history with slavery in, in our country where people were kept as slaves, where they were kidnapped from their homeland, where they were traded and sold as, as possessions, where they were viewed as subhuman, and in, in a lot of cases, um, uh, sub even your, your family, family pet. And so we have a horrific uh, um, history of that in the United States, so that when we encounter the word slavery in Scripture, we interpret it through, through that lens, and that can result in in leading us to a place that we do not want to go. So we need to define what is happening here as not what was happening in, in the horrific period of history in, in our country. Uh, slavery in the Roman, in the, uh, in the, in, in Rome. So slavery in the Roman Empire was ubiquitous and it was common. Somewhere between one third and two thirds of all the people who lived in the Roman Empire were at one point slaves to another. Uh, slaves could be uh, taken uh, in battle. So if you went into a battle, you conquered another nation. You might take back its uh, members of that country as slaves and enslave them in, in your your nation. But also, it was common in the person went into great debt to sell themselves into slavery as a way to pay off debt. Now, slavery as it happened here, the person was essentially viewed as property in the sense that the, the slave owner became the lord over them, uh, was in charge of them, and had full control over them. However, um, unlike slavery in America and unlike slavery in this country, and it's horrific uh, things, it was not typically race-based. It was not um, the view that the person who was, uh, who was a slave was subhuman. Uh, they did not have the, the view of, of depriving of education. In fact, uh, it would be very common for people in the slave class, people who are slaves, to be things like medical doctors and other very upper echelon, uh, uh, upper echelon jobs uh, to have employment in, in that kind of thing. And so um, while it is true that a slave in this sense is controlled by he who is his master, it was possible to buy your way out of slavery. You can move in and out of slavery. It was possible that you, if you were totally in debt, might sell yourself to another person. So this is, um, uh, while we respond to it and hear it uh, on both levels, we respond to it on one level, we hear it as American slavery. Uh, it is not, uh, it is not uh, like American slavery uh, in, in the senses that we mentioned. But secondly, we as Americans don't like to hear the concept of being enslaved or totally uh, controlled by anyone else in general. We don't like to, to hear that. In fact, it, it seems uh, quintessentially and horrifically un for us to hear that anybody would be in charge of us. In fact, 
if you ask what Americans value more than anything, uh, many of them are going to say freedom. If you ask what is best about our country, they're going to say freedom. If you watch a debate, you are going to hear lots of talk about freedom. Our country is largely uh, based upon this, making, again, our hor the horrific slavery in our past quite ironic. Uh, slavery for a few, uh, or, or freedom for a few, certainly not in our history, freedom for everyone. But we have put a huge emphasis on this concept of freedom so that when we read in, in, in Romans that, that we are now slaves to righteousness, we might have a tendency to view that as negative on several different levels. But what I'm going to argue, in fact, is that this, this slavery is not a negative, uh, but in this case, a sl this slavery is the kind of slavery that leads to a greater freedom. That, in fact, it lets us free from all kinds of things. So uh, Paul begins by saying, What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? I point this out again. The reason Paul asked that question is because he has been so effective in preaching grace. He has made grace seem so desirable. He has made grace seem so wonderful. He has made grace seem so amazing that the people now Wait, if grace is that good and God gives us grace because of our sin, shouldn't we sin more so we can get more grace? This is the second time they've asked the question. It's happened twice. It's the second time in the chapter. They're like, wait, grace is that good? I'm going to sin so I can get some. So well, the first time Paul said, God forbid. And in this time he's going to say, by no means. No, grace is not like that. And he says, here's why you don't do it. Don't you know that if you offer yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. The idea here is this. He says, You've been set free from sin. He's already made the point earlier in chapter 6, which we dealt with last week, that they died to sin. And as people who have died to sin, they don't have to continue in sin anymore. And yet some of them are being tempted and kind of, kind of on the edges of going, well, I know I shouldn't, and I know that I am dead to sin, but maybe I, I want to commit this sin. Maybe I want to do it. And Paul says, don't do it. Whoever you offer yourself to, as a master, you become its slave. And so in this case, he's talking about sin. And so sometimes we encounter people go, oh, I could never be a Christian, man. I need my freedom. I need to do what I want. I need to do my own thing. I'm in charge. And so we, uh, as Americans and, and people you meet, will present to you this idea that to, to not follow God and to do your own thing is freedom. Paul's going to say, it's not freedom. You've offered yourself as a slave to sin, and you've become its slave. And so you think you're free, but you're really just a slave to sin, right? And so this is both metaphorical and actual in a lot of cases, right? Because metaphorically, all of us can become enslaved to, to sin. We let sin reign in us. If we obey sin, sin's our master. We are essentially slaves to sin. But there are certain sins that emphasize this because the sin itself becomes addictive, right? And so in our culture, we have things like drug addiction. We have things like alcohol addiction. We have things like pornography addiction. We have things like sex addiction. There's like AA classes, right, for all of these. There's anonymous classes where you can go to and talk about your addiction to these various things. And so that would be an actual physical representation of the metaphorical that Paul's posing here, is that if you give yourself something and you let that thing control you, it gets to be in charge. That thing is Lord. That thing is master. He says, why are you offering yourself again to sin? You, 
why would you do that? He's already said earlier, you're dead to it. Why are you giving yourself bad to it? back to it? Now, I think that this is something that we, as Christ followers, need to be aware of and we need to watch, right? Remembering this, that we've been justified. We've been made right by God with his declaration that we're, we're right with him. He sees us as righteousness, righteous, but because he's done that, also then set us free from the entrapment and the snare of sin. The good news is you don't have to sin anymore. Last week we said that you're dead to it. If you're dead to sin, why would you enter back into a place where you allow sin to control you? Our culture lifts up the myth that if you, if you're religious or if you're a Christian or if you follow the Bible, you're under all those things and I can do whatever I want. I'm free. Paul says, no, you're not free. You're enslaved. You're enslaved by sin. And then he goes on to talk about this. Uh, uh, Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as an obedient slave, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death. Right? It's going, why are you doing it? Why would you give yourself back to something that leads to death? Most of us... um, given the choice between something that leads to life and something that leads to death, we'll choose the thing that leads to life. And yeah, I would point out that a lot of us are very stupid, right? Which I mean in a nice way, because you know me. I'm kind like that. But, frankly, the problem with us is, is that our brains don't always function right, right? We don't think right. So we know that certain things can lead to life, We know that certain things are better, and often we don't make those right decisions, right? Because I sit up here as someone who's overweight, right? And so so obviously, at some point along the line, I've made some decisions that didn't exactly lead to longer life, right? Um, It's hard when you live in West Michigan, though, and then they have a whole day dedicated to selling boomskis, right? (laughs) So, like... You're like, I should make the right decision, but sometimes the peach poonski seems like the right decision. <laughs> 20 minutes into waiting in the 45-minute line to get my poonskis, it seemed like a wrong decision. <laughs> but I'd already been there for 21 minutes, so you've got to hold out. So when I got my poonski and I brought it home and I ate it after dinner, it seemed absolutely like the right decision, right? Delicious. Here's the thing. The problem's not one poonski. The problem with me is that my donut limit, my, my donut-ometer, maybe not ometer, that would measure the speed. Whatever it is, whatever it is that, that governs down, that, that part of me that says, hey, Dave, you've had enough donut. It doesn't work right, right? And this is the perfect example of, of this because this happened the other day. I went to get a donut, right? Um, I had a child who was in trouble, and so... Because he was in trouble, I thought, I'll go down and buy a donut for myself and for Dave Buck and not get, and not get him one so that he can watch me eat a donut because that's parenting, right? <laughs> so I went down and I got a donut uh, from Phoenix Rising Bakery, and they're, they're amazing. And so I brought the donut back, and um, I ate the donut, and the donut was delicious. I might have eaten one donut before I got here, if I'm thinking about that. So at some point, I ate a donut. We know that. And so... That was great. There is this thing, though, that others have talked about called the law of diminishing donut returns, which is that if you eat the first donut, you'll always be seeking the same sort of donut high you got from the first donut. 
but like the next donut can never, ever live up to it. And so um, these were not like small donuts, like, hey, you ate a donut hole, or like those Dunkin' Donuts, the little donuts thing. Like this is a full size. It was a long John Custer filled. It was amazing. And so I ate the donut, and then like a little while later, I ate another donut. And for the rest of the day, I was asking myself, why did I eat that second donut? Why did I do it? And several people said, because it was there, which does seem amazingly accurate if you're, if you're looking at how I sort of order my life in relation to food. I was there and I ate it. And it seemed like it would be great, but I regretted it, right? So here's the thing about us. Here's the thing about humans. I feel like the whole thing we do, even after we meet Jesus, is that we pursue stuff and we're like, I know I shouldn't, but it's just so good and we do it anyways, and then the regret sets in. And what this scripture is trying to say is, like, why are you letting that thing be in charge of you, right? Because I got a messed up thing in my brain that says, but if I don't have that second donut, will I ever be whole, right? If I don't have a donut, what if I never ate a donut again? I lie to myself, say, I don't want to live that life, but realistically, if I never had a donut again, I'd be fine. It might not say it. I can say that sitting up here, right? There's some mornings where I can't convince them, but I can say that, like, I could literally never eat a donut again and be okay, but my brain doesn't function right. And so, Paul goes, why do you keep choosing that thing that leads to death? And donuts are a very good example in food in general because you make those choices, like, they can lead to physical death eventually. So, then he says, Rather of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And this is what I said to you last week, and I'm going to say it again. The solution to our sin problem is not that our desires for sin are too too strong. It's that our desires for that which is better is not strong enough. C.S. Lewis is actually one who said, he says, the problem is not that we desire too, too little. It's that we don't desire enough. And I've talked about this before, but in offering yourself and realizing whose slave you're going to be, who's going to run you, if you do not have the right view and if your heart has not been awakened to the joy and the greatness and the goodness of pursuing Jesus, you will never, ever resist the sin. You'll become a slave back to sin. Because the problem is not that you desire those things too much. It's that you don't desire Jesus enough. And I'm convinced that the only thing that ever sets us free from sin is not to stop desiring sin. It's to start desiring Jesus more and more. And the only solution to 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 sin with one desire is to find something that you desire more and more and more. And that's what this passage is saying. So what are you going to be a slave to? Uh In verse 17, then, he says this, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to the heart of the standard of the teaching to which you were committed. So he says to them, But thank goodness you guys stopped being slaves to sin. You became slaves to the heart of the teaching uh, that that was committed to you. And it's a very, very clunky way to to say something. Uh, Says that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient to the heart of the standard of the teaching to which you were committed. And there's all kinds of debate. Does that mean like they were they were faithful to the standard of of who Jesus is? Does that mean that there was a standard which Paul committed? It, it probably means all of that. But one of the ways, one of the things it, it could mean is this: is that there's a way in which the original language seems to suggest that they become obedient to that which has been stamped on their heart. 
Because remember, we're talking about slavery here. And one of the things that would happen in slavery, when a person became a slave in, in this century, they would be marked as a slave. They would have a mark put on them. This is my property, right? And so what Paul could be saying then is this. You have become obedient to the stamp that has been put upon you. You have been marked as one who is under the obedience to the new Lord, to your new master, to your, to, to your new uh, owner, which is righteousness. And so you've been set apart. You've been marked. You are now a slave to righteousness. You've become obedient to the heart of the standard, the teaching to which you were committed. In other words, instead of becoming a slave to those things which, which pursue us but lead to death, we've become a slave to something which is better that leads to life. And so the answer is not people go, well, I want to be free. Freedom as a human is, is limited. And Paul's going to make this point in just a minute. But freedom is limited. And your choice is not between absolute freedom and slavery to God, your choice is between slavery to sin and death or slavery to God. You don't get a choice for absolute freedom. It is not uh, how you were designed. It's not how you've been made. Uh, verse 18, And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Right? Righteousness is in charge of you now. We sometimes view ourselves as, as as broken. We sometimes view ourselves as defective. We sometimes view ourselves as unable to, to do right. And that's not what Paul says. He says, no, you become slaves of righteousness. Righteousness is in charge of you. We've already talked about how in justification, this is how God views you, right? God made him who knew no sin to become sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God. That God, when he views you, when God sees you, when God uh, looks at you, he sees you through the lens of who Jesus is. So he always already views you as righteous. But if he just viewed you as righteous and there was no possibility for you to ever act righteousness, he would be leaving you in your behavior which is destructive. He would be leaving you to a bad slave master. He would be leaving you to someone who was abusive and dangerous and hurtful and all of that. But he did not do that. When he rescued you and made you right with God, he also took possession of you. You have been then taken slave by God and by righteousness through conquest. Right? There's another, there's another place in 1 Corinthians where Paul's talking about he and the, uh, his, fellow, uh, his fellow workers, and he says, says that Jesus is leading them in triumphal procession, right? He says Jesus leads us in triumphal procession behind him. And people read that, and we go, oh, they go, oh, yay, we're in a victory parade with Jesus. No, Jesus isn't a victory parade. You are, have been vanquished, and he's leading you. He's leading you because he's conquered you. He's overcome you. And and we don't always like that language, but we have to understand that for our own good and for what we need and for who we are to be, God had to come and conquer us, take us over. And now he prays us through the streets as his property, as his, as his people who, who he's taken over and he's made his own. And so we don't necessarily like that language as, as Americans. And Paul himself is going to admit that, the, that it is not the, the perfect analogy. It's just a human one. Yet at the same time, when we realize that God has actually taken us over, we're freed then to live into the reality as slaves of righteousness. And the good news about being a slave of righteousness is this, is that sin is no longer our master. Jesus is. 
And so one of the things I want us to realize and want us to appreciate and want us to enjoy is this, is that sin is not in charge of you anymore. Who are you? You no longer have to view yourself in primary thought process and primary thinking as a sinner. That's not who you are. That's who you were. It's who you started as. But when God has justified you, when he has declared you righteous when he has made righteousness your master now you don't have to view yourself in terms of sin anymore you get to view yourself in terms of righteousness and life and that is good news that's gospel right so and he says having been set free from sin he have become slaves of righteousness i am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations in other words it's not the perfect analogy but it's an analogy they would understand because he's writing to romans and two-thirds of them one-third to two-thirds of them had actually been slaves. So this language would make sense to them. For just as you once presented yourself, your members, you know, your body, just as you once presented your body as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members, your body, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Sanctification is the process. Justification is the process whereby God declares us right with him. Sanctification is the process whereby God makes us like him. Right, And so he's going to make us as slaves to righteousness. When you become a slave to righteousness, God makes you like him. It is a promise that he gives us later in, in Romans in Romans chapter 8. It's going to say, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's sanctification. God did not save you, uh, did not rescue you, he did not justify you to leave you enslaved to your sin, but rather set free from it so that as he works his righteousness in you, as you become enslaved to righteousness you become like him you get to become like jesus and that's again good news uh verse 26 for you were slaves of sin for when you were slaves of sin you were free in regard to righteousness in other words yeah true when you were a slave to sin you were free in the sense that you were free to never act right you were free to never do the right thing you were free to continue in your sin but you weren't free to not sin right so yeah good news you're free if you reject God, you're free from ever having to be righteous. But you're a slave to sin, and that leads to death. But what fruit were you getting? That's a great question. Like, that's a question I like to, like to ask people, right? Sometimes when my children or other people get into trouble, and they're like, I did this and did this, and like, especially when they get belligerent, like, I'm going to do this, and, and they, they can't figure it out, and I go, so how, how's that working for you? Is that working good? Is that working Okay. Right? Um, at the moment when you're sitting with someone who's like um, in jail, which I've had that experience of talking to someone, they're locked up and they're still belligerent. I'm going to do me. I just got to be me. Only God can judge me. And they're locked up. And I'm going, you know who else can judge you, just practically speaking? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently Pablo Cortez, the judge of the, of the 62nd District Court here in Wyoming, Apparently he can judge you too because you're in jail, dude, right? So how's, how's that working for you? How's that working? That's what Paul just said. He's like, you offer yourself as a slave to righteousness. How's that working, bro? That going okay? Going good? Right? But what fruit are you getting from the things of which you are now ashamed? I think shame, I'll use jail as the analogy again. Meet with people in jail. No matter what their mouth is saying, the dominant emotion in a place like a jail is shame. They're just shamed for what they, what they did. God knew this, by the way, right? You want to go back to Genesis 1? The first thing God does is he kills an animal.
there needs to be a sacrifice. The second thing he does is he takes its skin to cover the shame. That's gospel work, right? But shame is dominant if you find people are sitting in the shame. Paul says, you did that, but you're now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and death and have become slaves of God. Listen, there's not a choice between absolute freedom or slavery to sin or slavery to righteousness. Your choice is slavery to righteousness or slavery to sin. Slavery to sin leads to death and shame. Slavery to righteousness leads to the person of Jesus Christ and becoming like him. It leads to life. That's good news again, and that's who you are if you are in him. But now you have been from sin and become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. You become like Jesus. In its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? So I want to say, I want to end like I started and say this. Do not hear the gospel as the means by which God is going to make you into a good little human. Like God says, God is not a school marm trying to train up, up polite little boys and polite little girls who do right little things. And the reason he's not is because that totally underestimates the depth of the brokenness and the depth of the sinfulness that you have. That suggests that there's just something a little wrong with you. And if God works on it, he can polish you up. You may be thinking of yourself as a fixer-upper. You are not a fixer-upper. You are a rotting corpse. And ain't nobody in history fixed a rotting corpse except for one. His name is Jesus. And so the gospel is not, God wants to make you a good person. The gospel is not, I'm just doing my best to try and become a good person. I'm doing my best to try and do the right things. I'm doing my best. I'm going to swear less. I'm going to be less mean. I'm not going to cheat on my taxes. I'm not going to do this. And I'm going to be a good little boy. You are going to be a good little boy who meets destruction and goes to hell. Because it's not the gospel and it does not work. The problem with you is sin is not a thing that you do. Sin is who you are when you are apart from Jesus. It's not a mild sickness or a cold. Sin is a cancer. And it always eventually leads to death. It is rotting you. Your problem is not that you need to be a little better. You need to work a little harder. You need to just work some things out. And you think that it's going to be okay. That's not it. Your problem is you were dead in your transgressions. And the only hope is for you to be resurrected in His, His being Jesus, righteousness. That's the gospel. And that's where we started. And so if you hear me when I'm talking about sin, saying, work a little harder, do a little more, you have not heard the message. Let me be clear, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. And your only hope was resurrection. And we talked about that. You were born sinful. You're an enemy of God. And how are you going to get a resurrection? How are you going to do it? Through this. God sent His only Son to die on the cross to take the punishment of your sin to take the wrath of God against you and he applied his righteousness to you. You need to be saved in a way that cannot save you. And if you don't get that you're dead and you don't get that you're a sinner, if you think that you're a fixer-upper, you need to deal with this reality. Your line of thinking is going to lead to destruction and separation and alienation from God. You're not a fixer-upper. You're dead. But, God in his goodness and God in his righteousness and God in his love took those of us who were sinners and he decided to justify us. Justification by which God took the dead and he made it alive. 
through his sovereign, good, and holy declaration. Through the actions of Christ on the cross, he tells those of us who were dead, and he resurrected us and made us alive. Now, in having been made alive, he has also then made you dead to sin. You were once alive to sin and dead to Christ, but in becoming alive to God and alive in Christ, you have now become dead to sin. The good news is, not only are you alive, not only does God declare you and see you as righteous, but he has made a means whereby you can actually behave righteous. You do not have to sin anymore. You're dead to it. Not only that, not only are you dead to sin, but your your slavery has been transferred. Your owner has been transferred. You've been taken from being a slave to sin when sin controlled you and bore only the fruit of death then your new owner is God. He has rescued you. He has He has come and He's triumphed over your old owner. He's defeated your own owner. He has taken you captive. And in taking you captive, He has become your new owner and made you a slave to righteousness. In making you a slave to righteousness, He has set you free from sin and death so that even further, not dead to sin, but you are free to righteousness or free in the sense that you can act right, you can do right, you can produce the fruit that leads to life because God has done this in you. You are now a slave to righteousness. Righteousness gets to be in control of you so that God can make you like His Son. And you don't know how good of news that is when you think about it. When I look at the mirror and I wake up in the morning and... uh, I don't have bedhead because I don't have hair, right? But if I wake up in the morning and I see the mess that is me, right? And I look in the mirror in the morning and I'm messed up and I haven't brushed my teeth and all of that. The Who I am in my looks and in my smiles is not near as disgusting as who I am in my heart, I know. And yet, God does not hold that against me because he's declared me righteous. God does not hold that against me because he's made me dead to sin, and God does not hold that against me because he's made me a slave to righteousness. So that even when I look in the mirror and I don't yet see it, God says, I am going to make you like my son. I'm going to make you like Jesus. And in making you like Jesus, one day you'll look in the mirror and you will be like the son of the living God. That is good news. And you might not know it yet is good news, but if you encounter the Jesus of Scripture... And if you deal with the reality of the fact that most of us live in shame for the things we do, the news that we can be like the son of the living God, that's gospel. That's good news. And that's what God wants to do in you. Right? And I want to say to you again and again and again and again and again, because God has rescued you, you do not have to live in sin anymore. You're dead to it. You used to be a slave to it, but God has come in and he's vanquished and destroyed your slaveholder. He's destroyed your old master and he's become your new master and he's made you a slave to him. And the good news about slavery to him is that you're a slave to righteousness, which leads to sanctification. Sanctification is the means whereby you become like Jesus. That's good news. Jesus would look at people and go, go and sin no more. What a great Jesus go, hey, go and sin no more. It's an amazing thing to say because sinning is what most of us do best. And yet the cross of Christ is the means whereby he comes and makes us his child and goes, go and sin no more. And if you're honest, you know that, that every broken relationship you have was caused by sin. If you're honest, you know that every hurt you've had was caused by sin. 
If you're honest, you know that everything that is vexing you and stressing you and hurting you and affecting you in this moment, it was caused by sin. So this is why it's good news. Because the good news is that God has already vanquished and triumphed over sin. He is in the process of making him so that the sin in your life, as it becomes less, your life becomes more. It's good news. It's good news. You have become a slave to righteousness. Pray with me.